0: Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 17, John's gospel, chapter 17. As most of you know, I was invited to speak recently uh, under the theme of the chief end of man. We understand the most of us are aware the first question of the Westminster Catechism asks what is the chief end of man and the answer is the chief end of man or man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever but from the, the, the instant that I knew that that was the theme the chief end of man the very first thought that came into my mind if I was going to preach on the subject was what is the chief end or what was the chief end of the man Christ Jesus And so when I was uh, invited, I said, well, that's the only thing that I can even think of to address. And so that was my topic recently. uh, In the form of a catechism question, what is the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? And so I want to try to answer that question using John chapter 17 verse 4. But I want to read verses 1 through 5 together and then we'll... Ask the Lord to help us understand something more about our Savior. John 17, we know is the high priestly prayer of our Lord, as I've said before and as others have said before me, uh, essentially the Holy of Holies. We, we are listening and watching our great high priest as he uh, prays to his Father. And so we read, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... that you gave me to do. And now Father. Glorify me in your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. And even more particularly the words of our Savior. So let's ask him to bless our time. Father we we need help. not just help, we need your almighty power to carry us through this passage and and through the topic. We wish that we could impress and and write effectually truth upon the mind with with the impact or force of, of rhetoric, but we can't, Lord, we cannot teach what only you can teach. So we're asking, Lord, that you would come in your mighty power and teach us and do that thing which you have been doing from eternity and which you will do into eternity, which is glorify yourself in our hearts and before our eyes and our minds by exalting your Son. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question is, what is the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? Or what was the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, what I want us to do and I mention this often when it comes to sermons, is very often we just we come and we just sort of sit. I just I just want to see a sermon. Or I want to hear hear some truth. And so we 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 allow the preacher to go through steps one through four to get to the conclusion. I wanna to get to the conclusion so that I can walk away with some climactic thing and then we'll leave. Um, and I don't think that we should listen to sermons that way. And I'm not very good at preaching sermons in the other way because I typically talk so fast that it's hard to really settle down and, and meditate on a truth. But but what I want you to do during our time together, and I'm going to try to help, I want all of us to fix our minds on Jesus and just think about Him. Don't think about sermon. Think about the person that we are considering. Because this is the the basis or the foundation of of everything else. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You can't do that. You can't understand that. You don't know what that means. Until you've understood first the chief end of the man Christ Jesus. What what did He come to do? What did He come to accomplish? Who is He? What was the purpose of all of this? Once we've understood that, then we can begin to comprehend what it means to glorify God then we can even begin to comprehend what it means to enjoy God. And so I want, I want us to, to push sort of beyond that purpose of man, our duty in glorifying God and enjoying Him, to the duty of Christ or what Christ has accomplished. We have to start with Christ. And if you could take this as sort of a Baptist jab... But this is why I appreciate the Baptist catechism starting with God, who made you, God made me, rather than the duty of man and working your way to God. We begin with God. Now, I know that they, they, they meant the same thing, and that's just sort of a, a lighthearted thing, but I, I do believe that we have to understand God. We have to understand Jesus Christ. We have to understand the gospel. Or I can tell you all day long, well, you're supposed to glorify God. You don't know what that means. You can't understand it. You can't accomplish it. You can't see any good in it. Until you've first seen Christ, fallen in love with Him. And when you see this was His chief end, everything that I love in the universe is found in this one person. This was His chief end, then surely this is the great chief end of, of everything. So I want us to just think about Him. And now in order to make this simple and uh, sort of keep track of what we're doing, I'm going to give three points walking through John 17, 4. With each point, there's a catechism question. At the end of it, so at the end, we'll ultimately have four questions that walk us through this passage, help us to understand Christ, help us to understand ultimately what is our chief end. So I'll, I'll bring each point to a, a catechism question that summarizes, and I don't expect it to be memorized by the end of the day, but but that's how I'm going to go about this. So then, John seventeen four, I want us to look at this verse pretty much exclusively. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The the first point deals with the subject of the text. The subject. the, The verse begins with I. There is a speaker here. There is a subject in mind, and I want to try to deal with that. Now anytime that we're dealing with the Godhead, and anytime we're dealing specifically with Christ, or Jesus Christ as we understand Him after the Incarnation, we always have to be very careful with how we read and interpret the scriptures. Because if we're not careful, we we, we can go very easily into error with regard to what we call theology proper or the doctrine of God. What we call this theologically or or, uh, scholastically maybe is partitive exegesis. When it comes to Christ, we use partitive exegesis. We have to... Consider the text and what it might be saying with regard to the divine nature or what it might be saying according to the human nature, understanding that those two come together in one person and yet there's no mixture, there's no confusion. They don't blur together so that the divine becomes humanized or the human becomes divine. Two complete, whole, separate natures in one person. and, And the Scriptures will... The the, the Bible doesn't give us a theology lesson every time it addresses Christ. And so we we have to understand all of that as we go into the text. In other words, we we let our theology influence the way we understand many passages of Scripture. So, who is speaking here? That's the first first big idea. Who is speaking? Well, the answer, we we saw that in verse 1, is Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, so the speaker is Jesus. The baby born to Mary laid in a manger. The angels sang at his birth. Uh, Herod sought him to kill him. That's who's speaking here. He's grown up now. The Bible says that he grew as a young boy. He grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and men. He grew just like every, every man in here has grown up to maturity, so also this Jesus grew to maturity. Just as every young boy in the midst of his growth is growing, Jesus Christ was right there. He grew just like you do. Just, just as every young boy, every little boy or toddler will by God's grace grow up to physical, natural maturity, this Jesus grew the same way. He went through the same processes as a young boy growing up. And at the age of twelve, we know that he he questioned the religious leaders in the temple, and people were astonished at his his knowledge and his understanding. He was baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. He traveled the countryside as a preacher. He never he never had a home of his own. He never got to that point where he said, "I'm, I'm ready to settle down." and built a life and a family in one place, but he traveled as a preacher for three and a half years. One time we know he got tired from his travels, just like we all do if we walked everywhere we went. He got tired. He sat down by the well of Samaria and spoke to a woman there. Another time he laid down in the bottom of a boat and went to sleep during, the, during a storm, just like we do when we get tired. Earlier in the week that we're reading about in the Gospels, he rode into the city of Jerusalem riding on a borrowed donkey. We just heard about the wild donkey. And I've been, I've been reading this week uh, in Job and how you know when we think of a donkey like the one Christ rode in, the, the kind that we see in a pasture or use for, for farming or, or labor, they're usually pretty docile, pretty dull, kind of slugger, almost sluggardly animals that we talk about the stubbornness of a mule or a donkey. Wild donkeys are not that way. Wild donkeys are a lot more akin to a A zebra or something like that. A wild, fast, pouncing creature. A donkey. He rode into the city of Jerusalem on a young, tame donkey. The foal of a donkey was led. Just before this scene in John's Gospel, he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and washed in between 240 dirty toes. Do the math. Twelve disciples, two feet each. That's 240 toes. He washed in between all of them. Is that right? 120. 120. He washed in between their toes, scrubbing them. This, this is Jesus. It's a man. He's praying. That's who's speaking. And the disciples get to hear Him praying. Now, I was asked recently, what is a great lesson that, that fathers can learn from Jesus about the discipleship of their families? One of the answers I gave was, Fathers need to be letting their wife and their children hear them pray. Jesus' disciples heard Him pray. There were times when He prayed and they met Him coming back from prayer. And there were times when He prayed and they heard Him pray. And they heard Him pray for them. If you are to disciple your wife and children, you cannot do it. If they are not hearing you pray out loud for them. It's a, it's a, it's a good lesson. But this is what we see here. He's praying. We get to overhear Him pray. But He also says, in verse 1, Father... The hour has come, glorify your son. So we can't just stop at the man, the boy who grew into a young lad, who grew into a mature man, and all these things. We can't stop there. We have to go on to consider the fullness of his person. The person here is the son of God. He's praying to God. He calls God his father. He speaks to the father, and he refers to himself. And This is a very personal prayer. Your son, speaking of himself. In verse 3, he talks about the father having sent him into the world. In verse 5, he refers to this glory that he had with the father before the world began. Because he's the son of God. He's eternal, as God is eternal. Going back through John's gospel, he said, I know the father, chapter 10, I know the father. The father knows me. The father loves me. In chapter 5, he says, the father loves the son, speaking of himself, and in John three, we know John three, sixteen and seventeen, he talks about the love that God had for the world displayed in this fact that he sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is the one that John started off with in John 1 1, and he's just been showing us this one all throughout his gospel. John 1.1, 1, 1. he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the Son of God. We call Him the second person of the Trinity. John started out in verse 1. This is who I'm talking about. And he goes through the entire gospel just showing us this one. And so we obviously ask, well, how can He be one with God and and one with the Father and loved by the Father and have a glory with the Father before the world began in eternity before there was a creation and also born to Mary laid in a manger growing up as a boy riding on a donkey how can how can how does this all all this go together and John tells us in John one fourteen that that word that eternal word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. And the Jews of his day understood that when he claimed to be the Son of God, that's why they wanted to kill him, because when they heard Son of God, they said he's making himself equal with God. It's blasphemy. Well, it's not blasphemy if he is the Son of God, and that's who he is. He's he's God in flesh. Who's speaking? It's Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is of one essence with the Father, truly and eternally God, and yet now He speaks after having assumed to Himself the nature of a man. Very God of very God. Here He speaks, and He's just as much God as if He were not man, and yet if we were watching, we would have seen a man praying just as much man as if He were not God. Jesus, the Son of God, And yet there's even more because in verse 3 he uses that title Christ, Jesus Christ. Mary gave him the name Jesus at the, the command of the angel. He's the son sent from the father, but he's also the Christ or the anointed one. The final climactic prophet, priest, and king commissioned by God to be a mediator between God and his people. So this is the Son of God, enfleshed as a man, serving in His role as our mediator. The mediator between God and men. A prophet for our ignorance because we don't know God, we can't see God, we don't want to to find God and yet He comes and reveals God. He's our priest because we're sinners and in our sin we cannot go to God and so He makes atonement. For sins, He's our king for our, our care and our comfort because we can't care for ourselves and we can't comfort ourselves and we can't protect ourselves. And so He comes as our king and our champion, the climactic Messiah, anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, all rolled into one. That's who's praying. Now, once we get that figure in our head, now, now, right, we've all got a crystal clear perception of who this is. You know, the Son of God incarnate as a man. We, we hold with faith who this is. But then we need to nail down the specific scope of this reference that Christ makes of Himself. Because again, we're not talking about somebody like us. We, could, we can speak of this same one before Abraham was, I am. He could speak of himself that way. We, and we could say Christ Before Abraham. And it's perfectly legitimate. At the same time he said concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the Son. Speaking of the same person and yet according to his human nature. Partitive exegesis divides that up and says well we know that he's not saying the Son of God was unaware of some fact. Because as God he is omniscient. He knows all things. But according to his human nature he could say that. We have to be careful with these details. So how are we to understand The present scope of his statement. Well, he says, I glorified you on earth. On earth. Referencing specifically the time of what we call his humiliation. His coming down to earth. That's important because right now, he is still the same person, still enfleshed with the same human nature, and yet he is not humiliated any longer. He's glorified now. What we have in mind here is His humiliation, His time on earth. So we, we could go all day talking about His glorifying of God in eternity before the world. We could go all day talking about His glorifying of God right now, exalted at the right hand of the Father. But we're, we, we want to focus in on His time on earth. Between the time that He was conceived in the womb of His mother, some of you women, you know what it's like to have conception, and in those early weeks, you have to take a test to verify. Because it's, 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 it's not like you just feel something in there. You just There are certain reasons. You say, ah, I should probably take a test. And the test says, conception has taken place. Our Lord was conceived in the womb of His mother. And in that same moment, was upholding the universe by the word of His power. God, and yet man, and we're talking about this time between the moment when He was conceived to the time when He was taken up into the clouds of heaven. his time on earth. So what's our subject? We have here a reference to the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity who is truly an eternal God, having taken unto Himself our nature during His humiliation or during the time between his conception in the womb of the virgin and his ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. Now I'm going to summarize that. Here's the next catechism question. What do we mean by the title, the man Christ Jesus? Answer, we mean the Son of God having assumed our nature during his time on earth. What is the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What do we mean by the title of the man Christ Jesus? We mean the Son of God having assumed our nature during His time on earth. Number two, I want us to consider the goal that we see achieved in this text. When you read the verse, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When we read that, we can clearly see he's describing his activity and he's describing that he has achieved some goal. So the question is, what goal did he achieve? And we actually see two things achieved in the the verse. First, there is the supreme goal, I glorified you on earth. The secondary or subservient goal, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And we'll deal with that second one in the next point. So I just want to consider that the supreme goal or the chief end. I glorify you on earth. What does it mean that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, having assumed our nature during His time on earth, that person, what does it mean to say that that person glorified the Father? When He says, I glorified you, what does that mean? Or, or more broadly, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, first we must understand God's glory. God's glory. We can think of God's glory in two ways. There's the the internal or intrinsic glory of God and then there's the external glory of God. Internally, the, the glory of God in Himself is really just all that God is. It's just God. Now, we, we could go on further to say, well, it's, it's all of the infinite perfections of God which really are just God. We divide them up. We study God's attributes. We get to the end. We say, well, what have we learned about? Well, we've learned about God. It's just who He is. It's all of the, the, the Godness of God. That's His glory. And you say this, you're not really helping me at all. The word glory means weight or in in the old world you you measured things by weight gold you know there, there was a time when you would buy a, an electronic from somewhere and you said this is no good it's not even heavy you know now now we we think oh it's light I, I like a, a light tv on the wall but there was a time when you'd go to the store if you if you picked up a tv and it wasn't heavy you'd think this thing's this is no good it's not heavy. I want something that I can't lift. I can't move. Because we 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 often understand if it's heavy, if it's weighty, there's some value here. Some some substantial uh pieces have gone in to make this thing. Glory. We measure uh gold by weight. That's how they would measure gold and metal and things like that. That's what the word means. Glory means weight or value or worth. So if we were to ask, well, what makes God valuable? What makes him not? Physically weighty. He has no body, no parts. He's pure spirit. What gives him his value? Himself. He just is who he is. His internal perfections. His godness is his internal glory. But typically, more often than not, when the Bible uses the term glory, speaking of God's glory, it's talking about something external. Something even visibly manifest before the eyes of, of creatures. What is that? Well, the external glory of God is simply the internal majesty and beauty of all of the infinite perfections in God coming out from God in some sort of... I'm doing the best I can. Some sort of created, visible manifestation that we can perceive but very often it just looks like blinding light. The the illustration that I I think has helped me the best is to think of a light bulb. If a room is dark and you want it to be illuminated, you don't bring a truckload of light bulbs and fill up the room and and say, now I should be able to see. No. You turn on one bulb and the glow or the effulgence of that light dispels the darkness. It fills the room. Now, you can see me and there's light in the room, but I can't touch it. it. It radiates. And this is how we might think of the glory of God. There's God in Himself, but then there's this, this radiance of God's glory that comes out from Him that is manifested in, in different forms that we see in Scripture, but usually it's just blinding light. The external glory of God is, is God manifesting His Godness to creatures that we see in Scripture who are never able to endure it, even when it is exhibited through some creaturely concession. The, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests had to just walk out. Why? Well, we can't work. We can't see anything. It's just a cloud of glory. We, we just we just have to wait until this dispels or, or, or whatever. We can't work. Creatures can't endure it. When, when God would manifest His glory to men, they would fall as though dead. They would, they would flee. This is the glory of God externally. I think this is the same as the the unapproachable light that God dwells in. He dwells in in light which no man can approach unto. That's a a created manifestation of His intrinsic glory. If it's it's light, if it's visible, well it's it's, has to be some created thing that God has put forth. It's the showing forth of His glory. So what does it mean to glorify? Well it doesn't mean to add to that or to make it shinier or brighter, to glorify simply means to display or point to or exalt the infinite splendor of God's perfections. It is to magnify God's glory. It is to put on an exhibition of the untold and immeasurable excellencies of God Himself. So speaking of God's communicable attributes like His righteousness, if you do something righteous... You have glorified God. How? Well, you put on a little microscopic exhibition of what is in its fullness and perfection in God Himself. Someone says, the way that you do that, man, that's, that's really great. That's, that's an upstanding way to conduct yourself. All you, you could say, all I've done is shown you just a little piece of what God is in His fullness. If you tell the truth... You've glorified God. Why? Because you've given a microscopic display of who God is. He is truth itself. And people say, thank you for being honest. It's so good to be with somebody who just tells the truth. You could say, that's just a sliver. All I have done is shown you a little piece of who God is in Himself as the God of truth. When it comes to incommunicable attributes like God's immutability... Well, we can't display that in any way, but I could stand up here and talk for an hour on immutability, and if and by the end, if you come to the conclusion that, that this is a good thing or you, you understand a little bit of it, well, you and I have both glorified God. We've we've come to see something in God that is worthy of our worship. That's what it means to glorify God, to put on an exhibition of God's Glory or God's excellencies, and So we read our Lord saying, I glorified you on earth. The incarnate God-man nearing the end of his earthly ministry, describing the period that began when he was conceived in the womb and went all the way to the time when he was ascended into the heavens and taken away in the clouds. He says, During that time, Father, I have put on an exhibition of all of your perfections. I've displayed you I've magnified your glory. I've manifested it to the world. The immeasurable excellencies of God have been shown to the the, the watching world in me. I glorified you on earth. I showed the world who you are. I made you known to men. If any of them saw me, they saw you, Father. That's what he's saying. So question number three, what do we mean when we say the man Christ Jesus glorified God? We mean that during His time on earth, He displayed and magnified all divine perfections. He showed us God. What is the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What do we mean by the man Christ Jesus? We mean the Son of God having assumed our nature during His time on earth. What do we mean that he glorified God? Well, we mean that during his time on earth, he displayed and magnified all divine perfections. He showed us God. Point number three. I want us to consider the means by which that goal was achieved. How did he glorify God? How did he show us God? I said that there are two achievements here. One of them is primary. He glorified God. One of them is subservient. It serves that greater end. So what is that subservient end? I use this illustration of a raft. You want to get from point A to point B. The, the, The raft on the water is the means by which you get from point A to point B. It serves that purpose. The raft on the water is not the chief end. It just serves that end. Here we have a subservient end. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Or, you may have, I glorified you on earth, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And there is a correlation here. He's not just throwing out random statements. I glorified you on earth, I accomplished the work you gave me to do. No, this goes together. What he's saying is, Father, I have glorified you on earth by way of accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Or having accomplished the work, having completed the work in this way, I glorified you, I, I succeeded in that chief end. And so there are two achievements. One achievement serves the other. If he had not accomplished the work, he would not have glorified God. But seeing that he did accomplish the work, he did glorify God. He succeeded. So we can say that glorifying the Father or glorifying God was the chief end of the man Christ Jesus and He achieved that end by accomplishing the work. Right? You follow me? So then, what was the work? That's that's the next question. I hope that you understand we're talking about something big. We're talking about this person, true God, true man, one person, on earth, showing other creatures God. How? We're, we're saying that He made God known to, to men and to all creation in a way that had never before been revealed and has never been repeated since. His time on earth. If someone comes to you and they say, I, I want to know what God is like. Tell me about God. We-, we could say, look at the man Christ Jesus during his time on earth. Now, is there more that can be said? Sure. But I believe that it all funnels down to that. It's all meant to get us here. Now, there are many things contained in the, the narrative of the life of the man Christ Jesus that, would, that show us things about God. God sent forth His Son. Wow, that shows us the goodness of God. That shows us the love of God. Jesus taught with authority like no one else. No one ever spoke like this man. Well, that shows us God's wisdom. He calmed the storm and raised the dead. Well, that shows God's power over created elements and over death itself. He healed the sick and the blind and the lame and the mutant and the lepers. Well, that shows us God's compassion for men. Many things that we can learn about God, but we could also on the flip side say, well, Just His very existence displays the glory of God because He is God. We could say that as well. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in the man, Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 1, it says that He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the shining effulgence of the glory of God. Paul says the glory of God shines in His face. So we could just say... His very existence is showing us God because that's who He is. And yet that, that manifestation of God in that form is still in some way cloaked by the human nature. So we have to go on past that to His work. And I would, I would again say that all of that, his, the things that He did in His ministry and who He is as a person, really funnels into this one great work that was accomplished by Jesus. So again, the question still remains, what was the work? To put it very simply, He saved sinners. That's the work. I glorified you on earth. How? By accomplishing the work. What was the work? I saved sinners. Let me read this. All of the infinite, incomprehensible, resplendent effulgence of the eternal, internal godness of God and all the various streams of beautiful truth that we know about God that we could we could we could go around the room and say, well, I I read that he did this, and I read that he did this, and this one time he did this with David, he did this with Solomon, and he did this with Abraham, and he did this with Jacob. We could go around the room and talk about all of the truth that we know about God, all of that that we we could describe of Him from eternity and even now as He's working in the world and all of the things that He will do into eternity. We put all of that together and I would say that all of that is meant to to be funneled into one laser beam focus in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One person accomplishing one work, saving sinners. So that if someone wants to know about God, ultimately you can say, God saves sinners. If someone asks you, who is Jesus Christ? You can say, that's God saving sinners. That's what His name means. God saves. Yahweh saves. What was the motivation for the Son coming into the world? It was to save sinners. What was the end goal envisioned by the Son coming into the world? That sinners would definitely, certainly, finally, eternally be saved. That's, that, that was the, the work, to save sinners. But obviously, you know, there's more to it than that. What are the details of this work? How did He save sinners? How are sinners saved? Sinners like you and me are saved by the coming of the Son of God in our nature, living His whole life in perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to all of the commands of God, then taking our sin upon Himself, and suffering the penalty of our sins in His body on the cross and dying, being put to death by being raised three days later from the dead and then ascending into the heavens, taking our nature into the heavens and sitting it down beside God. That's the work that He came to do. That's how He saves sinners. That's how He glorifies God. He took flesh and blood because we are flesh and blood. He lived a holy life because we are unholy. He suffered God's judgment because we are by nature children of wrath. He poured out His blood, His life, because only a life can ransom a life. He triumphed over death because that was Our greatest and last enemy. None of those problems were his in eternity. None of that was his problem. That glory that he had with the Father before the world began, none of that involved this. He was not flesh and blood. He was not unholy. He was not under God's wrath. He did not need to be ransomed and he was not restrained or constrained by death. None of that was his problem. That was our problem. He came into the world to save sinners. We are the sinners. He is the Savior. And then after that, He enters into heaven with His own blood in our nature so that we too can someday enter into the presence of God having been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's what God wants all of creation to know about Himself. I save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's only one God... And there's only one mediator between all of us sinners and that God, and it is the man Christ Jesus, who is given as a ransom for all. God's perfections are displayed in saving sinners through Jesus Christ. So, question number four How did the man Christ Jesus glorify God? Answer by saving sinners through his voluntary humiliation substitutionary, holy life, substitutionary death, and resurrection. How did the man Christ Jesus glorify God? By saving sinners through His voluntary humiliation, holy life, substitutionary death, and resurrection. In accomplishing that work and thus saving sinners, He exhibited God to the world. Paul says it three times in Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Why all this? To the praise of my glory, so that my glory would be made known to all creation. When Christ was hanging on the cross, God was being placarded before the eyes of men. Someone said, well, how does God feel about sinners? Well, look, there is His Son on the cross, saving sinners. Now, someone might say, well, 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 I've just always imagined that God would just is ready to destroy every sinner right this instant. That that's all He cares about is destroying sinners and punishing sinners. Because all I know about God is hell and wrath. No, look at the cross. He put forth His Son to save sinners. Oh, so then it doesn't matter what we do. We just live however we want to, right? No, look at the cross. He put forth His Son. That's how He feels about sin. God is being placarded. Christ Himself was saying, do you want to know what God is like? Then look here and see Him crushing His Son in order to save sinners. This is how He feels about sin. This is how He feels about sinners. This is why creation exists as a theater, a stage, so that a cross could be planted in the middle of it and a Christ could be hanged on that cross. That's what God wants us to see and know. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, we could—I could say from the beginning to the end. I could say, well, we have a Scripture. God saves sinners. I mean, He gave you His Word. Right. He's spoken. We could say, look at look at creation. We look at the things that have been made. Look at the birds, and we learn all. Oh, how, how God has instilled this nurturing uh, love in creatures like the bird sitting on its eggs. But what about the ostrich? Well, that's just an example of the fact that God doesn't need that. He can do it another way. It, well, it can't be the mama bird because sometimes they stay and sit on their eggs and sometimes they just walk right off and leave them to be crushed. What must it be? How are there more ostriches? God takes care of the ostriches. You see, we, we could say that. We see it everywhere. God wants us to know Him But in the Scriptures we see passages that state it very clearly. When considering the cross, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Glorify Yourself. If we were looking at the cross, our souls would be troubled. Father, what, what, what am I going to say? Send 12 legions of angels to get me out of this? This is why I came. That wouldn't make any sense. Father, glorify Yourself. What was His purpose? What was His chief end? To glorify God by going to the cross and drawing men to Himself. Mark ten forty five. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Say, Christ, why did You come? I came to give My life to ransom many sinners. John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why did you come? Why is there a chief shepherd? So that those who are dead in sins may live through my dying. He laid down his life to save sinners. John 10, again, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. For himself? No, for us. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. And you know how I like to imagine this interchange in eternity. And we can imagine the Father saying, I, I, my glory must be displayed. There must be some exhibition. There must be some manifestation. And I'm going to do it through saving sinners. I'm going to display things like grace and mercy and pity. By saving sinners, it has to be done. The son says, "You're right, son. You're right, Father. It does have to be done. They have to be saved, son. I'm going to charge you to go and to save my people. I want you to lay down your life, and I want you to take it up again to save my people in order to glorify these perfections in me." And the the son says, "Father, I thought you'd never ask." And then the son, the father responds by saying, "And that's why I love you so much." Because you are so willing and ready and and delightsome to hear my desires and then to take it upon yourself so that you can glorify me in the salvation of sinners. And so he comes willingly and he comes gladly. It was his chief end and it was his joy to save sinners. Yes, on the earth he was a man of sorrows. But his joy was to glorify his God. He was was enduring the sorrows because He knew of the fullness of joy that would await when He accomplished the work. As we read in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before Him. And I would encourage you to go read Matthew Henry. What what was that joy? Lots of different options, but it's helpful. He had joy in saving sinners. So let's review. What is the chief end of the man Christ Jesus? Jesus. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What do we mean by the title, the man Christ Jesus? We mean the Son of God having assumed our nature during His time on earth. What do we mean when we say the man Christ Jesus glorified God? We mean that during His time on earth, He displayed and magnified all divine perfections. He showed us God. How did the man Christ Jesus glorify God? By saving sinners through His voluntary humiliation, holy life, substitutionary death, and resurrection. And since He is God, we can conclude that this was also God's chief end. To glorify God and enjoy Himself forever in and by saving sinners through the work of His Son. This is how He glorifies Himself. He takes joy in this. this. This, we could say humanly speaking, this is what fills up the eternal joy of God in that He is able to make known His mercy and His pity and His love and His grace in saving sinners. And if you go and you read Jonathan Edwards' treatise, The End for Which God Created the World, and you make it through that first section where he talks about chief ends and subservient ends, which is... High weeds. If you make it through that, you'll see Edward says the same thing. Why did God create the world? Why wild donkeys? Why ostriches? Why hawks and eagles? Why? So that He could glorify Himself in the saving of sinners through His Son. That's that's the why. Why anything? To glorify God in the salvation of sinners. So then do you want to glorify God? Then make use of Christ. Make use of him. The worst thing that you could do right now is ignore or neglect or refuse to make use of Christ in in this saving work. That's the worst thing you could do. What David did with Bathsheba is nothing compared to someone hearing what God did through his son and saying, I'll wait till next week. Have mercy. I'll wait till later. Maybe, this, maybe later on this afternoon when, when we're not so busy. No, no. Make use of Him now. You say, well, where can I find Him? He's already been brought near. The Word is near you. It's, he's already here. Right where you sit, make use of Him. Let me give you five brief things. First, honor God by Christ. And by this I mean in your life in general in your life in general. We say, what kind of life pleases and glorifies God? Well, Christ's life pleased and glorified God so then, you can express your enjoyment and delight in Christ by imitating Him. Honor God by Christ. Matthew 10.38, he said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, morality is not the end. Why do you do what you do? I'm following Christ. I've seen His example. I'm following Him. Christ. Well, you know, God wants us all to be good. That's true. Make use of Christ. God loves it when we say Christ. I'm following Christ. I'm imitating Christ. There have been in the past who, who, would, who said when you're preaching, you shouldn't use the word Christ because it's kind of hard to say. The consonants and the vowels, they don't work very good and they don't roll smoothly off the tongue. So don't say Christ, you know, the the, the one who has redeemed us, or or something to that effect. I believe God loves it when we say Jesus Christ, your son. I'm imitating Christ by taking up a cross and following Christ because that's the way Christ went. Honor God by Christ. Number two, live to God by Christ. And here I'm thinking particularly of the language of Romans 6 and, and sanctification. Killing sin and putting on righteousness, that life lived to God. In this process, as you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh and seeking to have life breathed into your endeavors after new obedience, don't do it in your own strength. You can't mortify a sin by yourself. You can't put on a righteous habit by yourself. And don't even do it by some sort of nebulous idea of power of God. I just need need the power or something to that effect. No, you need the power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As our confession puts it, you need the virtue of Christ's death. You need the virtue of Christ's resurrection. That power, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, worked in you. And make that the the, the conscious activity of your mind and of your prayers. Ask for the power, the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Ask for the power of Christ's death. To, give, to be given so that you can mortify sin. Ask for the power of Christ's resurrection to be worked in you so that you can grow in holiness. Be a Christ-centered liver. It's, it's, it's all from Christ. Not just nebulously God. I can't stand God first. God, everybody has G-O-D in their vocabulary. Christ is what makes the Christian different. Live to God by Christ. Christ. God loves to hear the name of His Son in our prayers. The name and power and merit of Christ is the currency of heaven. You want to barter there, then you better bring some Christ with you and that will buy everything that there is. Live to God by Christ. Number three, think of God in Christ. And here I'm, I'm just thinking of your consciousness. But when you think of Jesus Christ... And when you think of just God, very often we tend to separate them in our minds. Especially when we see Christ in His humiliation and His time on earth. Oh, there's, there's Jesus Christ. But, but good thing God's up there. No, no, He is God. That is Him. So when you're reading and when you're thinking and you're studying of Christ, recognize that that's God that you're thinking of. And when you're reading and thinking and studying about God or theology proper, the attributes of God, remember, you're studying Christ. That's Christ you're speaking of. As Jesus said in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. One essence. So think of God in Christ. Number four, worship God in Christ. In John 14, 1, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, come to me and treat me as God just like you do God. In Revelation chapter 5, we read things like this. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. All of heaven saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshiped who? The Lamb. Worship God in Christ. There's nothing wrong with worshiping God generally as the one, perfect, eternal being. But we must also be sure to render our worship to Him as He is, which is three in one and one in three. And so with regard to Christ, worship Him and reverence Him with all of the worship and reverence due to God because that's who He is and that's what God wants us to do. We glorify God when we do that. That's not a subset of worship. Well, I worship God and then sometimes I worship Christ a little bit and then pretty much never but maybe on occasion I worship the Holy Spirit a little bit. No, it's God, three in one and one in three. Worship God as He is. And then number five, come to God through Christ. And here I have in mind particularly those who are not Christians. And you realize that you've sinned against God and that you have to come to God for salvation. As I told my family last night, and many have said this before, you might think it's cheesy, I don't even care. When you look at the cross and, and Christ has His arms open wide, that's a picture of God saying, here I am, come. My arms are open. His arms were held out all day long to stiff-necked, obstinate people. This is God, this is what He does. You, you, so you recognize, I have to go to God. God. The only rational response is to come to God right now, right this instant, not, not to wait. You, you know, you might say, well, I'm, I'm not sure if He really wants me to. Again, look at Christ. Did He ever turn anybody away? Ever? No. Come to God knowing God is as welcoming as Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. That's who He is. But you must come through Christ. Don't come in your own strength and your own merit. Don't come thinking, I I think I found some some goodness in me that I believe God will will receive as a, a token and let me enter into his presence. No, you better leave that at the door. You don't have it. Leave it. That's not the currency of heaven. Don't come in your own strength, don't come on your own merit. You come claiming what Christ has purchased in His death and resurrection. You come in His name. You pray, Father, I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, because His blood was shed for my sins, because He stands at your right hand making intercession, and only that, I am a sinner, I need to be saved. You come to Him through Christ. As Jesus said in John fourteen six. no one comes to the Father except Through me, you want to make you want to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Then make use of His Christ. This this is His 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 premier production, if you will. This is this is the thing he he has 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 centered his attention upon. This is His product. This is this top of the line. The only thing He's ever ever specialized in is His Christ, putting Him forth. You want to glorify Him. You come to God through Christ. Make use of Christ. Let's pray together. Mark's Gospel, which says, As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. We would say, why a, why a body? Well, because we are flesh and blood. Why, why do we need it? Because we are sinners and we deserve to die. And Christ came and endured that penalty for us. So in the bread, and there are a few things more humiliating to a preacher than to realize that a loaf of bread can do in two seconds what he's just spent an hour trying to accomplish. But here's the sermon. Christ broken for us in our place. Here's the sermon. God did this. God says, take it, eat it. My, my son for you. Christ given to you. That's God saying that. In the supper. And we miss out if we don't see that. As the elements are passed. Think upon Christ and what he's done. Even if you're not coming to the table. Think of Christ and what he's done. Think of your sins. Take them to him. And then we'll have communion together.